It's fun to be able to hang out and do this, isn't it? What a privilege. All right, well, um, good morning again. Again, my name's Gunther, one of the pastors here, as Brian said. And um, this morning's passage that we're going to be looking at, in case you need a Bible, by the way, we have some people that will give you a free Bible. Anybody? Just go ahead and raise your hands, and we'll go ahead and pass out a Bible. Um, the passage we're going to be looking at this morning is, is pretty relevant to some of, the, some of the reasons for the strife in our country. The issue of being able to be honest, to keep your promises, and to speak the truth. Obviously, it fills our political landscape, certainly fills our interpersonal relationships in this country. So I think it's very, very pertinent what Jesus has to say this morning. So um, I think Brian, a few weeks ago, made an important statement, and I'd like to kind of repeat that in the sense that what we're going to be looking at this morning out of the scriptures is meant for those who are disciples of Jesus and have that relationship with him. Because so often the Sermon on the Mount has in the past been taught as a moral compass for everyone to follow. But as we've seen going through these passages, the impossibility of doing to the depth that Jesus is revealing here is impossible for a human being to do in and of themselves. So if you're here this morning and have not personally made that commitment to him to follow him, you're here you know, just maybe searching or seeking, or someone dragged you here as a guest and you're wondering, why am I really here? Because I don't want to be here. I'd rather be out you know, at the pier eating lunch or something. I get that. I totally understand that. But as you listen, hopefully you'll see the nature and the person of Jesus in a, in a different way than you ever have and will cause you to become looking for him and seeking him. So with that, let's go to the book of Matthew, and that's chapter 5, and we're going to be starting with verse 33 of Matthew chapter 5. And so I'll go ahead and read it, and you can just read along. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair black or white. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Let's just, uh, again, just ask the Lord to come and grant us open eyes and open ears. Um, Lord, as we're sitting before you here as just followers of you, uh, we're just needing you. We're needing your word to have power in our lives. Uh, we need listening ears to be able to hear to the depth of our spirit. And we need you to change us from the inward to the outward. So please come in your mercy and by the power of who you are in your life work in us this morning. Thank you, Father. Amen. So we're in the middle of a portion in the sermon where Jesus is establishing the true righteousness of the law of God and repudiating the mere external keeping of the law and the false interpretive traditions added to God's commands by the ruling religious class of the time. Um, 
But before we actually delve into this passage and spend some time looking at the issue of keeping our promises, being truthful, I, I think it's really important that we understand the cultural place the followers of God found themselves in in the first century, as well as what the ramifications of the law have with us as followers of Jesus today, and how do we keep the true spirit of the law in obedience, and also how does this particular passage play out in our lives. I think it's important to lay a foundation for this first this morning so that we're actually coming into a better understanding of the scripture itself. At the time when the disciples of Jesus were listening to what he was saying here, they had what was called, at that point, called the Tanakh, which included the Torah, the law, as well as the prophets and the writings, which would have been the historical writings of different authors, such as Chronicles and Kings and other writings. On top of that was being developed by the religious ruling class of the day, what was called the Mishnah, later in the second century was given that name. But at the time of Jesus, these were oral laws and traditions with interpretations by priests, rabbis, Pharisees, along with the Sanhedrin, developed by them as a fence or a safeguard to ensure strict observance of the written law or the Torah. So as we've read through each portion of this familiar you know, passage, that we have studied, maybe if you've been a believer for a lot of years, it's very familiar to you. Jesus uses the phrase, you have heard that it has been said to you. Now, very few Jews at the time had scrolls of the Torah or the Tanakh. And so on Sabbath day, the scripture was read out loud to them. And then also during the Sabbath time, as well as the rest of the week, the rabbis would have discussions with their flock, with parts of the Mishnah, how to interpret the law, how to live the law, what did it mean to do. So on top of the scripture itself, what God had spoken, there were also traditions, interpretations of how to keep the law, how to walk with God. And so it became this burdensome, Thing that rested on the shoulders of Jewish believers of the time. And so when we hear Jesus saying, you've heard that it's been said, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because they didn't have the written scriptures to read for themselves. So before we go in depth on this passage, I'd like to move up to verse 17 of this passage, where Jesus, I, I believe this is a fountainhead verse for the passages that we've been going through for the last few weeks and today as well and in the next following weeks. Uh, a few weeks ago, Luke Lamas did a really great job of talking about these verses, and if you'd like to listen to that and catch up on that, I suggest you either go on to our Facebook page, which has all the previous messages, as well as uh, the website, calvaryslow.com, which has a number of them as well. Um, so I'd like to really today not really go over hardly anything that Luke uh, Lamas spoke about, but I'd really like to focus in on a bit on Jesus' words that have to do with the law. And why this is important for us is regarding the law of God, because for centuries there have been much writings, debate, and arguments over the law of God 
in his commands and how the believer relates to that under the new covenant. The extremes of these arguments can go to, well, we don't do sacrificing of animals, but on the other hand, we need to keep the law of God as much as we can, and so there are strict observances on what you do, where you go, how it looks, especially on Sabbath days. And so there's that one extreme on one side. On the other is very common, especially today, that we are under grace. And so under grace in the New Covenant, we have no relationship to the law. It has no meaning in our lives, and it's there really just as a vehicle to lead you to Jesus. And after that, you sort of put it away, and then you walk with Jesus. Really, both extremes neither do justice to the spirit of grace on one side, but neither does it do anything about obedience and walking in the spirit, as we'll look at this morning. Now, obviously, because this has been centuries of debate and arguments, and certainly was even in the first century of great debate among the early believers of Jesus, this morning I'm not going to clear up hardly any of that. (laughs) But... I do want us to have a great understanding of a framework in which we can come into a place of greater understanding by the revelation of the Spirit of God to us. So, I'd like to look at three main areas that the law covered in the life of a God follower, especially for that time, and then look at a few words of Jesus concerning the law. So, I'd like to go to the first slide if we can. And I've kind of, and this is, Not my idea, it's been done before, but in a sense of just sort of giving three thrusts, three main purposes and coverage that the law covered, the law of God, the commands. First would be your ceremonial sacrifices, such as your feasts, uh, Sabbath days, circumcisions, dietary laws, etc. Secondly would be uh, the civil or judicial law, which might cover capital punishment, societal laws, court decisions, and so forth. And thirdly, which would be called the moral aspect of law, uh, general actions of word or deed towards God and man. This helps us to understand maybe a little bit better as we go further into this, where does the Spirit of the Lord take us in regards to the law? Let's look at the next slide. Where Jesus is speaking about the law here in verse 17 and 18 and 19. So I just want to spend just a few highlighted moments on that. First he said, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. The word fulfill here means to carry out to the fullest extent. And Jesus really came fully obedient to the entire law of his father with his deeds and his words and also carried out in his own body the full punishment of the law in the sacrifice of himself at the cross. Now the resurrection vindicated him from the penalty of the law because he was righteous and fully complied with the law of God and did not sin by breaking that law but took actually our punishment as being lawbreakers unto his own body. Secondly, Jesus says, till heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke will pass from the law. 
Now, just think about that for a moment. Till heaven and earth pass away, how far in the future is that? I don't know. But we know it is at some point far in the future. And what Jesus is saying here is that till the end of heaven and earth's existence and to all, until all things are bright, brought to a final culmination, the law of God, even the smallest part of it, will not be put aside. That's what Jesus is saying here. Also, breaking of the least of the commandments and teaching others to do so equals being called least in the kingdom of God. Let's go to the next slide. Jesus follows up that statement by saying, whoever does and teaches them equals to be calling great in the kingdom of heaven. Maybe because I'm teaching on it this morning, I'm moving on up the ladder. I know, that was a sad joke. That's okay. And then Jesus finally finishes up this section here by saying, unless our righteousness of keeping the law exceeds that of the Pharisees, that we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, considering the seriousness of these words of Jesus, I really think it behooves us that we're not cavalier in our approach to how the words of Jesus are worked out in our lives. Would you agree with that statement? The problem is not God's law or his righteous requirements. I think that's important to say. The problem is in us and our inability to keep the whole law. And that's really the same problem the early believers faced in grappling with this tension as well. Paul said in the book of Galatians that you who try to keep the law for righteousness sake, that if you... Let's say you keep one side of the commandment, but you break the law of taking the name of the Lord in vain. Well, then you've broken the whole law, is how God sees it. So this burden rests on us. The good news is that God has made a way for us in his son Jesus, so that lawbreakers become law keepers by the power of the one who kept the law, which is Jesus. So, the three next slides really help to reveal God's process in us. So, I'd like to look at those. Let's start with 1 John there, 3, verses 4 through 5, if you'd like to turn to it or just read it on the screen. John, of course, is the writer of the book of John. And he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and that in him there is no sin. That's a powerful statement in my mind. Jesus is equating the practice of rebellion, whether the sin of omission or the sin of commission, as being an act of lawlessness or without law. But we see him saying, but look, the Son of God came to take away lawlessness in us. Do you kind of see that? Okay, let's go to the next passage. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. In fact, I'm going to turn around because I can't look at the things. I'll just read it this way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So you see, the righteous requirement of the law is never taken away. But God has provided in the fact of his Son by walking according to the Spirit of Christ who dwells in us, this living person, who kept the whole law living within us. We walk according to that, and thus God fulfills the righteous requirement of the law in us. Because the law wasn't the problem, is it? Our own broken nature is the issue at hand. And thus, when the law comes and speaks to us, we, it rises up in our, our old nature, thus causing us to rebel, ignore, or walk away. Can you see that? Now the third slide. This is Romans 10, 5 through 10. And Paul continues to write, For Moses writes about the righteousness of the law. The one who does them will live by them. That was basically the requirement for righteousness sake under the old covenant. But the righteousness which is of faith or trust says this, that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes, resulting in righteousness. Isn't that an impressive statement? And with the mouth, confession is made, resulting in salvation. Now, there's multiple other verses. There's, I mean, this could easily be a three-hour message. Thank God it won't happen this morning. But... Hopefully, as you begin to study on your own and begin to look into this, we begin to see God's plan and purpose in our relationship with the law of God and the righteous requirements of it that are fulfilled in Jesus, who Jesus' followers have dwelling within them, thus fulfilling the righteous requirements and living out the law of God in truth and in spirit. Now, Does God define what the new covenant is in his word? That's, that's not a trick question. What do you guys think? Is there a place where he defines what the new covenant is? Okay. Does he define the difference between the old covenant or the old testament as regard, in regards to the new testament? Okay. Where would that be? Somebody said Hebrews. Who said that? Who gets the gold star? That man right there. You can pat him on the shoulder later for giving the correct place. Let's look at that slide real quick. Hebrews 8, 8 through 12 is really reiterating what God promised through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 31, where God promised his people who could not keep the law the new covenant which was based on a promise. Look, the days come, says the Lord, Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the testament or covenant that I made with their fathers in the day, that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant 
they broke. And I disregarded them. I mean, obviously, if, if any of you are going through YLBL and the process of pain in the heart of God and pain in his people for rebelling against that covenant, it's a very depressing and difficult passage to read. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says Yahweh. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to their greatest, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. Now, it would be one thing to read in just in Jeremiah 31 that this is just speaking about a national restoration. But the fact that God speaks here in Hebrews chapter 8 and again repeats it in Hebrews 10, 16, and 17, all around the person of Jesus being the perfect high priest, the perfect sacrifice, and the one who forgives and takes away sins, this applies to us, and I don't know if there's any Jewish people in here, but for us as Gentiles in general, that this is the new covenant. That God puts in us his laws, his commandments, by the power of his spirit, writes them, literally pens them into our inner man. And thus, out of that comes where we're going here in Matthew chapter 5. God's whole design is to put the new covenant into place by placing it in our hearts and the knowledge of him filling us up. The knowledge, you know, in the old days, in the other of the old covenant, be know the Lord, know Yahweh. Well, I don't know how to know him. What is he like? Because of the indwelling spirit of Jesus, we know the Father. We know the Spirit. And we know who the Lord is by that personal revelation that God gives us in his heart by his Spirit and by observing the Spirit of the Lord coming out with other Jesus followers that you spend time with. That is the beauty of this. So that we can walk with him within the righteous requirements of the law because it's filled through Christ in us and living that out. Okay. That's a lot of introduction, isn't it? But I really felt it was important to at least get a foundation from which we're going to this passage here. So, let's go back to the passage in verse 33. Again, back in Matthew. Jesus kind of said, you've probably heard these things about don't swear falsely, perform your oaths to the Lord. Now, this passage he's referring to is really no passage directly in, in the Old Covenant, in the, in the Torah or in the Tanakh. It's really a combination of two different thoughts that were expressed in two different places. One, from a civil point of view, it was about keeping your vows that you'd made to God or another man or another person. That was one, and that's spoken of, and I'm not going to go to the place where that is. And then, also from the Ten Commandments, about not taking Yahweh's name in vain, the name of the Lord. This is basically covering two aspects of our speech, telling the truth and keeping our word on our promises. Verse 34, Jesus 
Instead of simply relying on tradition, he says, but I say. Now, that's always in every one of these verses that we've been studying the last few weeks, where Jesus steps up and says, but I say. Now, if he was not more than just a mere man, he would have been stoned for saying something like that. In fact, he was stoned, tried to be stoned by others multiple times. But for the audacity for a mere man to say, but I say, with authority, speaks of one who's more than just a mere man. Jesus is getting at the interpretations of when he says, but I say to you, don't swear at all, either by heaven, and he begins to go on. Jesus is getting at the interpretations and rulings and allowances given by religious leaders that it basically nullified God's command by finding loopholes to lie for advantage or manipulation or providing a way for someone to not do what was promised. Now, it's important that when he says, I don't want you to do any oaths, that we don't misunderstand that. Because Jesus is not forbidding oaths, let's say in a court or a contract that you sign, or a marriage vow, for instance. Because we can see in multiple places in the New Testament where oaths and promises were made, and even God swears to keep a promise. So that's not the part and part, uh, the part of what Jesus is trying to say. He is not trying to, to define the perfect external keeping of the, this commandment, but rather the heart matter about keeping word and telling the truth. It's called inner integrity of God. David said, Oh Lord, you, desired, you desire truth in the inward parts. That's what Jesus is speaking about here. This is about God and honoring his name within this. When we take his name in a deceitful, false, or empty manner, we are representing God in a false or worthless way. We're presenting a false God. We're presenting an idol. That's what it really means to take the name of God, the name of the Lord, the name of Jesus, in a vain or empty way. That's what it produces. And that's what Jesus is speaking about here. This is another question, and I do want a response on this. What would you say is one of the most ringing accusations that are made against Christians today in America? There you go. You got it. You're following. You're tracking. Play acting. Putting on a false face. I have to admit, it's true. That's why this passage is so crucial, especially in this day of age of lies, false truths, manipulations. We, at this critical juncture in our country's history, as well as this time in history for ourselves, that we need to be men and women of integrity. That that inner character is a heavyweight, not a lightweight. I believe all of us can be heavyweights in integrity, in inner truth. I believe that. So, think about this. What, what prevents us, what prevents you from telling the truth? Fear. Yeah, fear. That's good. What else? Pride. Pride, yeah. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. 
That's a good, that's, that's powerful. Shame. It's a very powerful motivation. Why do we do it? Why do we hide behind our lies? What delays us? What delays you from keeping your word? How can we make it right when we don't? I want you to consider that and think about that. So I'm going to have my wife come up. And she wants to share her personal you know, story of what the Lord's done in her life about this issue of inner truth, inner integrity. And uh, I asked her during the week, and oh, she's already got her tissue. <laughs> but my wife, I, I value so much in my life. And um, so I'll just let her share because I'll start getting emotional. I've shared this part of my story personally with people, but I've never shared it publicly like this before, so bear with me. It's not something I'm proud of, um, but I am a testimony to God's mercy and his saving grace, and the process of being saved once you come to Christ. Um, To give you just a little bit of background, I gave my life to the Lord in junior high, and it was sincere. It was a sincere confession. And then when I entered high school, um, I got a bad case of FOMO. I was so concerned that I was going to miss out on all the fun in life. So I literally prayed a prayer that went something like, I'll be back, but don't let me die. (laughs) Sounds so silly, but I mean, it was a genuine prayer. I just wanted to go and experience life because I was certain that being a Christian meant the end of all things fun and good and I mean, really, I did. Problem, I lived in a very conservative home. My parents set very clear boundaries for us kids. And I was a product of the 60s and the 70s. And there were lots of things to explore and do. So in order for me to accomplish that goal, I had to lie to my parents a lot. And I would create these very detailed deceptions and manipulations so that I could, behind their backs, do the things I wanted to do. So basically, I was it. I lived a double life. At home, I was the perfect child. I was this. And then, as soon as I left the house, my life was completely different. When I was 17, my life caught up with me. And to be honest, through tears of sadness, not gladness, I gave my life to the Lord because I was scared to death of going to hell. And I was on the fast track. So I came to the Lord, and immediately a lot of my practices and lifestyles fell off. I mean, you know. There's some things you just don't do. You can't justify when you're a believer. But 
lying had become such a part of my DNA, I didn't even really notice it. I would over-exaggerate things. I would under-exaggerate things. I would tell white lies. And I found myself, I would lie about things even when I didn't have to. It, It just was what I did. Time passed, I got married, and I still lied a lot, almost daily, in ways that people wouldn't notice, maybe, or really be offended by, but in time, when I would exaggerate or omit parts, I'm painting a picture to someone that really isn't accurate. I told stories about myself that weren't accurate. In time, I started becoming aware. It seems silly that periods of time went by where I wasn't really aware of my lying, but it's the truth. In God's mercy, he cleans us in stages, doesn't he? And it was time for me. And I became very evident, you know, I'd lie and then I'd think, why did you do that? Why did you say that? That was just so unnecessary. And I realized that I needed help. You know, I would, I would make a resolve, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. And then I would find myself in some form or fashion lying. And Gunther even was unaware at this point. I had never really brought that to the table with him or disclosed that to him. But I knew that I needed help. I needed some outside help. And I knew who I needed to go to. And on the day that I had an appointment with this person, my heart was palpitating. I had cold sweats. My hands were clammy. I felt sick to my stomach. I thought, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to this person who I respected, and I'm going to just close this deep, dark secret, and lightning's going to come from heaven. I mean, literally, I'm like, I'm going to die. And I thought, you know, I would rather die on the side of heaven missing one leg or both, then continue in this lifestyle. It was just a bondage and a stronghold in my life. So I went to this person, and as you can imagine, she spoke truth to me. She was loving and gracious, and she challenged me to go home and ask the Lord to show me every area in my life where lying manifested itself. Just, And that was a scary process, too, of... You know, Psalm 139 says, search me and know me. And it's not because he doesn't know what's in there. It's because I don't. Mm -hmm. So it took several days crying before the Lord and just, by God's grace, being courageous enough to be honest and going to Gunther and disclosing, you know, what this long-term chain was that I was carrying. And in his mercy... When I went back to this gal, you know, as you can imagine, I experienced for the first time in my life such incredible freedom in this area. It felt so good to come clean and to know that it was okay for me to be truthful and honest, not even not just with other people, but with God and with myself. And uh, she told me this would happen, and it has, and it's kind of an interesting, she said, you know, from now on, you are going to have a passion for the truth. 
And when something comes out of your mouth that's not accurate, you're not going to be able to live with that. And it's so true. Even when I accidentally leave someone with an impression that's not accurate, I just can't, I have to go back to them and say, you know, I said this and that's not exactly accurate. It's more like this. Interestingly enough, after that, I went into a career in law. (laughs) (laughs) Where truth was our economy, you know? Well, at least in this in the office I worked in, truth was our economy. And so I just I just want to encourage you. I know how that is when you're living with something in your life and you're afraid to come clean. Maybe it's lying, maybe it's something else. You're afraid of what people will think, you're afraid of what God will do, you're afraid of burning in hell, whatever it is. And I'm just living testament to the fact that there's mercy at the mercy seat and God's economy is truth he wants us to be to have that truth in the inward parts that Gunther's talking about Um, and if I ask you annoying questions in a conversation that seem like I'm digging it's just because I have a passion for the truth so I'm sorry thanks babe thank you I can say for my precious dear wife that while she struggled with this, on the other side of the ledger, her vow to keep her promise to me as a faithful partner has been true the entire life. And I won't invite any of you to live with me because then you'd have more incredulous, like, how did God do that in you to stay married to him? I'm, 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 well, yeah, I'm sort of joking, but really half serious because I know myself too well, and um, she stayed faithful to that promise. She's kept the covenant. Let's go down to verse 37, and we'll finish this up. Finally, he says, you let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than that is from the evil one. There is a lot in that statement. I believe Jesus is revealing here that at best, all these wild oaths and promises only are an indication of the insecurities that someone is not going to believe us. At worst, we're trying to hide or manipulate. Didn't Jesus himself say that the evil one is a liar, that the devil is the father of lies and liars? Certainly, the enemy is portrayed as someone, as a being who puffs himself out or elevates his position by subterfuge and deception in the world, and even in believers' lives. Whereas the comparison is our Lord Jesus who said, I am truth. I keep my promises, Jesus says, even to eternity. So you can believe in me, is his ringing statement to us and to the world. Um, Let's look, just for time's sake, let's look at Uh, Not the next slide, but the following slide. 
Because the following slide really went over what Jesus was saying in the part of the message. Let's go ahead and go back to that. That'll be fine. There we go. I called it Oafish Oaths. Yeah, I didn't think it was very funny either. (laughs) Jesus is saying, don't swear by heaven or earth. Jerusalem or your head, which is what they would do. So without using his name, oaths using these places under certain interpretations gave people away out of promises or to hide the truth. But what Jesus is saying in this, that God is in all of this, God is always seeing and hearing and ruling over all. But in the sense of the next slide in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this is what the declaration is about Jesus according to Paul. And he's talking to a group of believers in Corinth that he had written a first letter to, and now he's following up with a second letter. And he says, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. So Paul is literally living out what Jesus is saying here. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is a powerful verse. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. The word amen simply means it's going to happen. Let it be. In the words of Captain Picard, make it so. Well, the captain of our faith, the promises of God are make it so in my children's life, in my believer's life, in my disciples' life. The promises of God are for you, yes, for sure. They're not yes or no. There's no ambiguity with God. It is yes, and so be it. And that is the Lord that we follow. That's the Lord who lives in us. And through the testimony that my wife gave is the power to live out what Jesus is talking about here. So let's have the band come up, if we can. And I'm so grateful for these men and women that share every Sunday. What what talent, what grace. I mean, I have trouble picking up. Rubber band harp. But these guys just are incredible. I'm really thankful for them. So, one last question or statement that I want you to be thinking about. And let's look at that slide. This is Jesus' statement. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so it's the basis of love and forgiveness and washing and empowerment that we receive that we are able to keep the commandments. And Jesus is basing this simply on a loving relationship with him. So, I think a statement is, will you say what is true, and will you do what you say? Does he? And that's an important question, because sometimes it can seem like God is not keeping his promises. It seems like sometimes God is not faithful. Every believer has wrestled with this throughout the ages. But does he? That has to be answered for us as an affirmative.
by the revelation of himself. So, if you are his, I believe you will. So, why don't we stand? And let's, let's just respond to the Lord in, in, in giving back to him 